move on. Here we go. If you got your Bible, dig them out. How many of you love camping? How many of you just decided, I, I gave up on camping a long time ago? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in that boat. Yeah, I, I, uh, my, my parents have a camper. It's like 23 feet long, and, and I don't camp unless it's in that. And then I look at that camper and think, man, I don't know if I can do roughing it. That just looks painful. It's not my own bed. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not into roughing it anymore, but I used to be a long time ago. In fact, I had a Jeep that uh, I spent exorbitant amounts of time and money making giant, and you could drive over cars with it, and uh, we, we took this thing camping and exploring all over the place, and um, we had a friend, uh, my best friend, he did the same thing. We, we both would take our Jeeps and just go, go crazy for weeks, weekends at a time, and one camping trip, we decided we we're going to go on this, like, blaze our own trail, excursion, crossing rivers, and all sorts of cool stuff. And so we, we spent the day um, before leaving packing up the Jeep. You, you can only pack so much in a Jeep. It's like two backpacks. That's it. And then you still don't have room for the dog. It's, it's, that's it. Um, you find creative ways to take things on the Jeep. Duct tape comes in handy. I mean, you're duct taping things on the roof, onto the back. Anyway, so we, we went out, and, and we found this place, and uh, we dug all of our, th- we, we, we got to this destination, we, we had to cross two rivers, four or five feet deep, 50 feet across, and tow each other across. I mean, th- this was some pretty intense stuff. It, w- it was an adventure. We got to the other side of this river, we, we dug our things out to set up camp, laid the tent on the ground, and uh, I'm standing there and I'm, I'm looking at our inventory, and all of a sudden I felt that flush feeling come over me. And I said, hey, hey, Ange, did, did, did you get the, the tent poles? And she says, no, you're, you're in charge of the tent. That's what I thought. Yeah, so that night I ended up making a tent out of sticks while my four-season, nice, comfortable tent lay there in a pile. And I'll tell you, for a little bit of time after that experience, I remember thinking back that man, if I would have just been prepared, that would have been a whole different experience. That could have gone a whole nother direction, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, let me read this to you. It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Being holy simply means to be set apart, to be different than the world. And that's what this is talking about. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone and be holy, set apart, different than the world. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. See that no one misses out on the grace of God because of a bitter root that grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. See, the author of Hebrews was speaking to a Jewish culture at the time who were steeped in legalism. Right? They were all about the Ten Commandments and following the rules. And he's saying to them, see that no one misses grace because of legalism right? We want people to see Jesus. See, here's the point. God doesn't want us to get to the end of our lives, the end of a season, perhaps the end of a marriage, the end of something, only to look back and realize, if only I would have had grace, that could have been a whole different experience. 
That could have been a whole different thing if only I had had the grace of God through that time. See, here's the thing about grace. Grace begets grace. See, when we experience the grace of God in our own lives, it does something in us that causes us to exude grace and to give grace, right? And that, when, when we give grace, it changes everything. When we receive God's grace, it changes everything. It changes us from the inside out and causes us to, to be different. Let's take, a, let's take a minute and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and as we continue to get into your word about what you would say to us concerning the grace, the overwhelming, overcoming, forgiving, freeing grace that you have for your people. Lord, I pray that today something would sink down into our soul and take root Lord, and that grace that you give us, Lord, would somehow give birth to grace that would explode from us to the people that are around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so here's a quick recap. Last week, we learned that um, because of our do-good, get-good worldview, the culture that we've just grown up in, sometimes it's difficult to believe that God could truly accept us for who we are. And I want you to know today that God loves you. Bruises, wounds, baggage, past, all the stuff that we carry, God loves us regardless. Now, I want to remind us that there's a difference between acceptance and approval, right? God accepts you the way you are. He loves you in your brokenness. He loves me in my brokenness, right? But here's the thing. Uh, Our culture says that acceptance is approval. Our culture says that that in order to, to accept somebody, we have to approve of Everything that they are and everything that they do. In fact, our culture now even takes it one step forward, uh, one step farther to say that not only should you accept the things that I do, but you should also make them your own. Right? Sound familiar? We hear about that in our, in our culture a lot. But here's the thing about God and here's the thing about His acceptance. Love is different. Love says, I accept you unconditionally and I love you. But here's the thing. Love I love you enough to tell you the truth and walk with you into something better and walk with you into life. And I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to walk with you through it, right? That's what, that's what love says. And that's what God does by his Holy Spirit. When we come into God's grace, when we come into his forgiveness and his acceptance, the Bible tells us that his Holy Spirit indwells us and he walks with us through change. The things that are hurting us, the things that are hurting the people around us, the things that that have stuck to us from our past, uh, whether it be wounds from others or wounds that we've caused others because of something broken in here. The Bible tells us that, that the Holy Spirit is in there lovingly walking with us, bringing change slowly so that we can come to the place where we have peace in our soul, where we have hope where we're standing in healing and where we are people who are exuding healing by the things that we say and the things that we do. So we've been digging through the book of Ephesians and um, 
within the context of grace. Here's the thing about Ephesians. There, there is, I don't think, any other book in the New Testament that covers grace more than the book of Ephesians. But here's the thing that we have to understand about this book. It's like an iceberg, right? Uh, above the water, you see something, but below the water, there's obviously something way bigger. And here's, what, here's how that applies to grace. There's something of grace underneath the surface of the book of Ephesians that when we read on the surface, what we see in the words, it's easy to compartmentalize the subjects that Paul's talking about. But what happens when you apply grace, the subject, subject of contextual grace within the culture of the people of the time, that you see that, that under the surface, when we understand what grace is, that all the parts that are in Ephesians all fit together into one subject, grace. And so um, if you want to learn a little bit more about the subject we're talking about today, we started a series about two months ago, Grace Changes Everything. You can go to our website, crossroads.life. Uh, you probably have to scroll back a little bit in the, in, the, in the messages, but you'll find that one, and then one from last week, and then today, Grace Changes Everything. Okay, so as we've been exploring in Ephesians, we're learning what Paul says about God's awesome, outrageous grace, and again, there are three parts to grace. There are three parts to grace. Number one is the attitude of the giver, the one who's giving grace, there's a particular attitude involved. Number two, there is the, the um, gift that substantiates the attitude. It's proof of the attitude. And three, there's our response, right? Gratitude is the response to the gift and the attitude. All three of these things go together Biblical grace, these three things are inseparable. As you discover grace in, in God's word, you'll discover that these three things always go together. Anytime in the New Testament you're reading and you see something about gifts, there's an attitude attached and a response. Look for it, you'll find it. If you see something of, of um, a response somewhere in there, there's going to be a gift that was given and an attitude attached. They're, they all three go hand in hand all the time. Biblical grace is relational, not transactional. We've got to catch that also. Biblical grace is relational, it's not transactional. When, when we enter into, to great, into God's grace and He gives us the gift of salvation, the gift of the church, the gift of, of the Holy Spirit, it causes something in us to, to, to act up, to respond out of relationship, to go back and say, you've given me so much, I want to know you. I want to enter into something, right? That was, that was a cultural thing, a cultural moray in Paul's time and in Jesus' time that is important to catch now because we, we are so, um, we're very um, transactional, right, in, in the way we live life. Uh, birthday parties, for example, um, if somebody gives you a birthday present, the response is, cool, thanks, I got a birthday present, Right, but we can go on and and sometimes not even talk to those people for till like a year later on your next birthday, right? I mean that's not quite a relationship. Sometimes it's it's a transaction. We go to the store and and we buy something, or, or we get served at a restaurant, and um, we don't necessarily have a relationship with those people, do we? Right? They've given us something, they've served us in some way, and we're thankful. We say thank you, 
But we don't have a relationship there. It was completely different in, in, in Paul's time. When someone served you in some capacity, there was, there was a response. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But today I want to talk about the question, how do we receive grace? How do we receive grace? And secondly, how do we know when we've received grace? So how do we receive grace and how do we know when, we, when we re, we've received grace? Uh, I hear people often say this to me, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel worthy of the grace of God. I've, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had someone come to me over the last 20 years of ministry and say, I, as much as I, I hear about God's grace and I hear about His forgiveness and I hear about His love, I don't feel worthy of receiving that. And I want to tell you today, I completely understand it. That is a hard place to be. And I think there are so many of us that are at that place where we think, I know I get it intellectually. I I know what the Bible says. I've read it and I've heard preachers preach on it. But for some reason, I feel like I just, I, I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of that. And before we move on, I want to tell you, I feel you. I absolutely feel you. But I want, to, I want to encourage you with something, okay? This is going to sound really weird. But that's a really good place to be. It is, in fact, probably the best place you could be. It is the best place I could be. And here's why. Because that's the point. That's the point. We're not. We're not worthy. That's the beginning of receiving grace. When we come to the place of of acknowledging, I'm not worthy of all that God has done for me. And it impacts us. Something in here says, begins to shake and says, I'm not worthy. It's a great, great place to be because that is the doorway of receiving the grace of God. See, grace is received when we see the great thing that God has done, when we see that the price He paid on the cross has forgiven something of our sin, has forgiven all of us, has has renewed our lives, has given us a, a hope and a future, has given us the promise of an eternity not destined to hell, has given us the promise of life now. Restored relationships, renewed dreams, all the things that come with the grace of God begin with first saying, at our core, I'm not worthy of that. See, grace is received when we see the great things God has done and we understand we didn't deserve any of it. And then through faith, we begin to believe the attitude that God has towards us. Right, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we, we've talked about it several times that, that for by grace you have been saved through faith. Right, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not by our works lest anyone should boast. Right, grace is received when we see the great things God has done and we understand we didn't deserve any of it. And then through faith we begin believing the attitude that the Bible tells us God has towards us. An attitude of acceptance. An attitude of of I want you to be part of my family. I forgive you. 
I have a place for you. I've gone before you and I've prepared a home for you. I'm calling you my own. I'm for you and I'm not against you. You have a hope and a future in me. And then we begin to receive the gifts that God has for us. The Bible talks about three different types of gifts. Number one is the gift of salvation. That's the first evidence of God's attitude towards us. The first evidence of God's attitude towards us is the salvation that he's given us. The second one Paul talks about is the gifts of the church, the relationships that we have, those who he's given to to help us grow in our walk with the Lord. And thirdly is the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live a, a godly life in pursuit of him, is our counselor is the one who encourages us, the one who, who shapes us from the inside out and, and slowly begins the process of restoring us and renewing us to become more like Christ, to weed out the garbage and to bring healing and life and renewal. So I'm going to give you a quick illustration about grace. There's a story um, uh, a bunch of years ago about a, a czar who was on the battlefield as his commander was dying. And as the commander was dying, he told, he told the czar, who was a close friend, that he, his, his son, he wanted him to take care of his son. And so the czar said, yes, I'll do that. And so he raised the son as his own. He took him into his family. He gave him all the best things. And, and eventually um, he went on to... to be part of the military, to join the military and, and to, to walk in his father's footsteps. And he was, um, he was given uh, uh, a responsibility of taking care of the finances of the, whatever, the, the branch of the military he was in. And while, while he was doing that, no one realized that he had a gambling problem, a gambling addiction. And he would continually take money from the, from the military funds and one night, he was sitting in his tent, leaning up against a pole, looking at the ledger of, of the debt that he owed, and knew that there was no way that he could pay it back. And he'd brought with him some alcohol and a revolver, intending to end his life because he knew he had failed. And as he prepared to end his life, he decided he'd take a few more shots of alcohol just to make the job a little bit easier. But in the process, he became overcome by the alcohol and he passed out. Right about the same time, the czar, who regularly dressed up like a normal military person, would go through the camp to get a sense of the morale of the, of the team, went in to check on his, his adopted son. And he saw him slumped over with a revolver on his lap, alcohol spilled off to the side, and a ledger. So he picked the ledger up and he, and, and he read it to see the debt that his adopted son had accumulated. And so he stuck a note to it that said, paid in full, signed by the czar. I'll take care of it. And he placed it on his lap and he took the revolver and he took the alcohol and he went on his way. Right? That's what the grace of God has done for us. That's what the grace of God has done for us. It's forgiven us, forgiven us for something far more than we could repay. Right? Faith is always a product of a grateful heart. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is always a product of a grateful heart. 
Do you think that the son would have any problem believing that he could trust the czar? No, because the evidence of the attitude was there, right? And it's the same way. When we understand God's attitude towards us, we'll have no problems putting our faith in him. We have no problems trusting God when we recognize the great thing that he's done. Gratefulness just is a product. See, here's, here's the thing. Grace is the attitude that produces gratitude. Grace is the attitude that produces gratitude. But it's not your attitude. It's his. Grace is the attitude, his attitude towards us that produces in us a grateful heart. It produces gratitude in us. That's, that's the natural response when we understand his attitude towards us. Psalm 116, verse 12 says this. David said, how can I repay? What can I offer the Lord for all that he has done for me? And then you can read this, but he, he goes on to, to say all the things that he's going to do in response to the grace that God has given him. He recognized God, what God has done for him, and, and he's responding to it. See, we know we're, we've received grace when it stirs us to action. Catch that. We know that we've received God's grace when it stirs us to action. Our response to grace is gratitude. Our response to grace is gratitude. But catch this for a second. Thankfulness and gratitude mean a little bit different thing in our culture than they did to this culture. See, remember earlier I said that, that um, grace in this culture was relational and not transactional, right? And again, being thankful for a lot of us sometimes can just be a state of mind, right? I'm thankful throughout my day. I just, as, as I'm going along, I'm, I'm thinking of things that I'm, I'm thankful for, and I put them in there, and all of a sudden I get a smile on my face because I'm grateful, and then I move on, right? There are things that we're thankful for all the time that don't stir us to action, right? I mean, there's probably more things that get us ticked off that stir us to action than things that, that we're thankful for. But here's the thing. Thankfulness and gratitude in the Bible always are attached to an action. Here's what I mean by that. So uh, we've talked about the, the, um, the word that we get our word grace from in the Greek is the word charis. Charis means grace. The word for gratefulness is the word eucharistan. The root word of that is charis. The majority of that word is charis. Literally, it means the active response to the first two parts of grace. It's the active response to the first two parts of grace, which are the attitude and the gifts. Gratefulness literally means to respond in action to God's grace, His attitude, and His gifts towards us. So, after Paul reveals in uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that for by grace we're saved through faith, the first part of Ephesians, Paul is talking about God's love for 
the, the, the church of Ephesus, for the church in general, right? And he's explaining to them the vastness of God's love. And then when we get to the end of chapter 3, which we talked about last week, we see that, that Paul tells the church, I want you to understand the vastness of God's love and that he is able to do far more than we could ask or think. So in there, he talks about God's attitude and then he talks about the gifts that God has given through salvation and the church and the Holy Spirit. But then chapter four is where he begins talking about what is our response to God's grace. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time on that as we begin to wrap things up. But I'm going to jump over to Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to follow along with me, this is, this is not going to be up on your screen. I'm just going to be jumping around on some select passages. And so try to keep up. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. This is Paul talking about our response to God's grace, our active response, right? He says, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on to remind them of the gifts that God has given them. And he picks back up in verse 17. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. A lot of us here have heard uh, at one point point or another, when we come across the word therefore in the Bible, to look back at the previous chapter. And I want to tell you, that'll mess you up. Here's why. In a lot of the passages, or a lot of the books that we find that Paul wrote, there's a whole lot of therefores, and they're typically all connected back to one point, and sometimes you won't understand that point by going back one, one chapter. Sometimes you have to go back to the beginning of the book and get the context of the entirety of the book before you can understand the therefore. If you look at one therefore and then jump back one, you might land on another therefore. That was leading back to something way back. Okay, so what we're seeing here is we've got about four or five different therefores that are all pointing back to one thing, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, right? So that's what this therefore is pointing back to, back to and he's pointing out this is now our response to that. And then he jumps to another therefore, pointing back again. And then pointing back again, all right? So we're going to jump on the first, therefore, I just read, that we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard, uh, you have heard him and have been taught by him the truth of Jesus that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. That doesn't mean if you have an old man, you're supposed to put him away. Yeah, I'm getting there too, Tom. My kids are going to lock me in a closet. Uh, But he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God. Therefore, number two, 
He says, put away lying. Here's the great part about this next section where he's again talking about our response to God's grace. He gives us things to put off, but then immediately says, now put this on, right? He's telling us not only what to put off, but as we pursue Christ, what to put on. See, we have to remember in the culture of the day, for example, it was stinking hot, right? In, in Israel, in the Middle East, it's, it's stinking hot and there's sand everywhere, right? And, and if you were out just wandering in the, in, from one town to another and, it, and you were overcome by heat, you could die. They didn't jump in the Land Rover and, and drive from town to town. I mean, they had a donkey. And most of the time, they didn't have that. They had their feet. And that was it. And as they would be going from place to place and they needed shelter, they would stop at some random stranger's house and knock on the door and say, may I have shelter? It's stinking hot out here and I'm going to die. And the response would be, of course, come in. Let me get you a meal. That was known to be culturally normal, to take care of one another because they all knew how dangerous life was. But here's the thing, when that guest would leave, he wouldn't leave and say, hey man, thanks, give him a high five, and then out the door he went, never to be seen again. He would always thank and acknowledge, you've done something for me. How can I repay you? Is there anything you need? Is there anything that I have I can give you? Anything that I can do for you? See, that is why this culture of grace wasn't transactional, it was relational because of situations like that that constantly took place. And that's the context, again, that Paul's writing in. He's saying, not that we can do something for God. We can never repay God for the grace He's given us. We can never repay God for the forgiveness and the restoration that He's doing in our lives. But Paul is saying, our response to grace is, Lord, what can I do for you out of my gratitude? You've done so much for me, and you're God, and I could never do anything for you, honestly, because you have everything you need, and you are all in all, but what can I do? And Paul is saying, our response is this, and again, he says, therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, right? That's the response, that we should speak the truth. Don't be, uh, he says, be angry, but don't sin. Right? We are people, and we get angry sometimes, right? But he's saying our response, don't sin in your anger. Don't give place to the devil by, by reacting. He says, you who, st- who stole, steal no longer. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may have something to give to those who are in need. He's saying the response, now as we're pursuing Christ, is to be good givers, Right? Don't take things, trust God, work hard, and be a good giver. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Listen, this is an interesting one. But what is good and necessary for edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. How could our words impart grace? After we've just talked about what grace is and the three parts of it, here's the interesting thing about imparting grace with our words. Remember, grace is an attitude. Paul is saying that our attitude to the people we talk to 
should be a certain way, pleasing to God, in favor of them. Right? That's hard sometimes, isn't it? That is, that is hard. But out of, out of gratitude to the Lord for what He's done, our attitude to others should be one of grace. And that the things that we say should be a gift to them. Dang, that's hard stuff. Right? That the things that we say should be a gift to them that causes a grateful response. That when they hear the things that we have to say, they respond out of something of gratitude in their heart. Now listen, that might not be immediate because I tell you, if I tell my kids something that is with a right attitude, kids, I love you, right? And I'm going to impart a gift to you through my words that is, don't be a bonehead. (laughs) Their response immediately is not going to be, oh, I'm so grateful. (laughs) But you know what? When they're 25, it might be, right? It may take a long time down the road. See, that's the thing is when we speak the truth in love with a right attitude, it's going to produce life. And sometimes it might, might take a little while for that seed to, to grab hold. But when we plant something of life in our kids or the people we work with or our spouse, right, out of a right heart, a genuine heart, and share things in love, it's going to produce fruit. But that's what that, that's what that means, to, to impart grace with the things that we say. Right? And he continues, another therefore, holy smokes, how many of these are there? Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore be imitators of God. See, as he goes through these therefores, he's condensing his thoughts a little bit. He's condensing what's going on. He's condensing our, our, what our response to be should be towards God's grace. And he says, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved and given himself for us. And offered himself as a sacrifice. And then he goes on and he has has a list here of things that he says, listen, these things are going to destroy your life. Put them off. This is a more serious list. I'll let you read it. Chapter 5, starting at verse 3. But jumping down to verse 8, he says, For you were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the world. You are a light in the world. Walk as children of light. Right? He's, he's refining his thought. He's putting the vision into, into a sentence. Right? We're now children of light. Walk as though we're children of light. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have nothing to do with the fellowship of, of, of darkness and unfruitful works, yet rather expose them. See, that's an interesting thing too. What he's saying is that for other believers that we need to expose areas of darkness with one another. When we see things that can be a foothold or a trap for other believers, we've got to be able to point those out and say, you know what, this is something that, that I fell into. Uh, watch out for this thing because this is, this is a big deal, right? It doesn't mean going to non-believers and saying, hey, uh, you need to knock that off, right? Did you know the Bible tells us not to judge the world? The world's just being the world, Right? We have to allow the Holy Spirit to, to, to stir in us, seeing a little bit differently so that we can, we can walk in life. But listen, let's continue here. Uh, 
I'm going to jump down to verse 15. This is, this is where he condenses the thought down, down even smaller. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And here's it in a nutshell. Therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He, st- he shrinks it down to a nutshell. Understand what the will of the Lord is. You know what that, that means? That's When I was a kid... Um, uh, growing up, we spent a lot of time in Oklahoma and my grandparents' house. They had a railroad track running just right behind their house. And every now and then we'd go out there and, and we'd get our BB guns and we'd be hunting. We'd go hunting lizards down this railroad track and there were lizards everywhere. It was fun. But every now and then we'd, we'd stop and we'd think we'd hear something. And s- somehow, I don't even know where we heard it at, somebody said, hey, if you put your ear to the railroad track, you'll hear the train. I don't know if I ever heard a train put my ear to a railroad track, but I tried. We'd stick our ear down there and listen. You hear a train? I don't know, man. It's still quiet. But what Paul is saying is that we've got to stick our ear to the track of the Holy Spirit. Right? We want to stick our ear to the track so we can hear what is God's will. I remember reading this passage as a, as, a, as a young person and thinking, yeah, but I don't know what God's will is. I want to know what God's will is because I, I want to do what's going to be pleasing to Him. Here's the thing. When we are intent on pleasing the Lord, you're going to know what the right thing is. Here's the thing. God created you with, with wisdom and an intellect to make choices, right? And, and you can make choices that are righteous, or we can make choices that are unrighteous. And when our hearts are intent on pleasing the Lord, we're going to want to choose the things that are righteous, and they're going to be stirring in our heart. And you might go right, or you might go left, but guess what? God's going to be with you in either one because you're choosing righteousness down either one. So whether you go through door number one or door number two, if your heart is intent that, Lord, I want to follow you, and I, and I don't care which door I go through, but, Lord, I want to follow you, he's going to see to it that you get heading in the right direction. Amen. Right? He's going to direct your steps, the Bible tells us. Right? He's going to direct your steps. He's going to lead you down the best pathway of your life because your heart is intent on serving him, on, on righteousness. And that's what Paul's saying. Listen to what the will of the Lord would be in your, in, your, in your soul. What's the right and righteous thing to do and head that direction? He goes on. He talks about marriage. He talks about children in relationship to parents all the way through, through uh, chapter 6, verse 10. And that's where he stops talking about our response to grace. What's interesting is he talks about marriage and children obeying their parents as part of our response to God's grace. Right, Lord, how can I, what can I do, Lord? How can I serve you? And he says, live this way. Honor your parents. Love your spouse. Right, do these things out of gratitude. Right, and then the place where he stops talking about gratitude is in chapter 10 where he begins talking about the whole armor of God. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in his, the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Right? And he's reinforcing the idea that, that as we're going to live for God now, now God is protecting you. You've come underneath the protection of a loving God. 
right? Who, who, is, who is watching you, who's with you, whose attitude is for you and not against you, whose gifts support the fact that his attitude is what it is. And now we're going to respond. Second Corinthians, in fact, almost every book that Paul wrote, he sums up something of what he says here throughout the entirety of the book of Ephesians. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 is, is one of those, and I'll read it to you real quickly. It says in, in verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge this way, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. What he's referring to is that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty of sin for all mankind for all time. Jesus came to pay the price to forgive the sin of everyone, to forgive your sin and my sin, to restore a broken relationship between mankind and a perfect, almighty God. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. See, here's the evidence. He died for all, for all time. See, that's an absolute truth, right? It, an absolute truth, again, is applies to everyone, everywhere, every time. Right? That's how you define absolute truth. Christ's death on the cross, his, his forgiveness of sin, his conquering of the results of sin were absolute for all people, all places, all time. But then he, he shrinks things down a little, little bit and he talks about those who will receive that. Those who live, right, those who have received that shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. See, when we receive the grace of God, we make the choice to say, God, I'm no longer living for me. You paid the price for me. Now, I want to live for you. And when we make that choice, at that point, we receive the forgiveness of God. All that He thinks about you is right and righteous and perfect. And He says, let me walk with you. And like a loving Father, He puts His arm around us and He walks with us through life. Bumps and bruises and all. And He heals us, He renews us, He restores us, He lifts us to a place of of. of of peace. He lifts us to a place of healing. See, gratitude flows from a place of believing God is good and we're not. Gratitude flows from a place of believing that God is good and we're not. That's a hard thing sometimes to, to, to understand, right? Because we compare ourselves to each other. We compare ourselves to, to inmate Bob that just got out last week and moved next door, Right? And, 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 and we think, well, well, I'm better than that guy. But here's the thing God's standard is perfection. And when we fail to meet God's glorious standard, we fall short. The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
But here's the wonderful promise that he sent Jesus to come and take our place for our failure to be perfect. And he said, I'll be perfect for you. Trust me. See, entitlement shows I don't believe God's good at all. I think he's holding out. I deserve something better. And we begin to demand from God instead of respond to the loving invitation of a God who knows our hearts, our dreams, and our desires, and he wants to give gifts to you out of his endless abundance. God absolutely wants to give good things into your life, and he invites us. He says, come to me. Just come. What do you need? Let's close our eyes for just a minute. And I'm going to ask you this morning, what do you need? What do you need from God? I know when I hear that question, I, uh, there's probably a lot of people that think, I need a million bucks. I need a new car. I need a house. Right? We can think of all sorts of things that we need, but when we look down deep in our soul, I think we all crave for relationship. We all crave for the things of our past that have hurt us or are hurting us or are hurting others through us to be healed and mended. And I want you to know today that those things only come through the grace grace of God found in Jesus. And he would invite you today to enter into a relationship with him, to be forgiven, to be made new, to have a heavenly father who will walk with you and be all that you need so that by the time you get to the end of your life, you won't have any regrets. And you might look back and say, you know what, even if I didn't get a million bucks, I got healing in my soul. And that was far more valuable. If that's you today and you want that, would you just look up at me? Jesus wants to bring you into a place of forgiveness and hope. I see you there, sir. Looking around the room, anybody else? See ya. See ya. See ya. See you. Anyone else? You need to know today that I see you. If I didn't see you, I want you to know today that Jesus sees you. And I want you also to know that through him today, your sins are forgiven. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and everything has been made new. You know what? That's God's perspective. You're new. You might not feel new. You might wake up tomorrow and think, you know what? I still did the same dumb thing that I did yesterday. But God says, you know what? I'm not leaving you. I love you. We're walking together and we're going to get through this. And guess what? Today's the first day of healing. Tomorrow's going to be another one. And the next day is going to be another one. Because my mercies are new every single day. And nothing you can do can screw that up. 
you're forgiven. God loves you and you are now in a relationship with him. And he would ask you, come and live for me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your great, big, enormous grace that we can't even understand or fathom. Lord, you are so amazing. And you've extended something to us that, Lord, we can never wrap our minds around. But Jesus, we are so thankful that, Lord, when we're wandering in the desert, you take us into your house and you feed us and you give us everything that we need. And Lord, as we leave, Lord, we would ask you, what can I do? And Lord, you've given us an answer in the book of Ephesians. And so, Lord, we want to live our lives for you as we go out of this place today. Lord, we submit to you. We surrender to you. And we're going to go live differently than the world. Because without holiness, no one will see the grace of God. And we want everyone to see it. Because it's changing me. It's changing us. And it's bringing hope. And we're experiencing something of life. And we want everyone to have a piece of it. So, Lord, we love you. Go before us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you guys. Pastor Terry will be back.